Hey, Tara. Hey, Johnny. Here we are, baby. Still at it. Yeah. Still in my house. You're in your house. <laughs> um, yes, and I have <laughs> I have done nothing more since the last time we spoke. There has been well, no... I... <laughs> well, no, you're the cleaning man. Why, I can't get uh, motivated. I did. I did stalk you yesterday. I did come by and wave at you from your. Back okay, door. so I. Okay, but shush. So I get a text yesterday, and it says, "Go to your back door." And I was like, <laughs> "Booty call during quarantine? What the hell?" <laughs> and sure enough, I opened my door, and there was my wonderful co-host and friend with homemade people. Not store bought homemade oh, yeah. chicken soup, chicken chicken rice soup, and um, wonderful chocolate chip cookies with maybe a little something extra in them. Not I not put, what I, you're thinking. I put boots in them. <laughs> what was it? Bourbon. Yeah, well, you know, the other day I was baking and I I ran out of um out of vanilla and I looked it up and they were like bourbon's a good substitute so now I just add bourbon to every baking thing I do because it's really so <laughs> it's amazing so I <laughs> but I was so incredibly moved and touched and it was so nice to see your face it I really know. was it was fun um hey look we're getting through this yeah I was talking to a good friend of mine who said you know about a month ago someone tweeted at her from Italy and in and, and lockdown day 29 and she had thought how in the hell? Yet here we are. We're incredibly adaptable creatures, aren't we? Yep. And and we just need to keep on going for the time being. And uh, yeah. I'm very proud of all of us. I think we're doing you know a what? really incredible job. I am too. And I think it stems from the top. I mean, our leadership, our you know, our governor and our mayor, yeah. and and actually our Screen Actors uh, Guild uh, SAG after leadership um, it has been great. And we have. Leading into our guest, uh, the uh, secretary treasurer, who also happens to be an Emmy-winning actress, Cameron Mannheim, joining us today. You know, Jenny, that wasn't even a subtle segue. That was that was just full on. I love. I, know. Wow. I am so Make- excited because I'm such a fan of hers. So I can't wait to talk to her. And we also have something at the end of the show. You want? Yes. You want to let them know. Yes. Uh, so at the end of the show, I, I won't tell you exactly what it is because I, I want to, uh, you know, not prejudice your thinking on it. Um, it's something I've been thinking a lot about, and we have an expert to talk to us about it at the end of the show. So we'll introduce that person after our lovely Cameron um, leaves the virtual soundstage that is her phone. <laughs> All right. So, so let's stop talking and let's just get Cameron on because this is going to be a good one. And we're back and super excited to have our next guest, who is not only an Emmy-winning superstar, in my opinion, but she's also the SAG-AFTRA secretary-treasurer, which is a really big job right now. And um, hey, hello, cameraman. Hello. Should we just preface this by saying I was only elected six months ago, so that I have... uh, Never imagined I'd be, you know, in the middle of a world crisis trying to help yes. 160,000 members. <laughs> yes, and we will get to that for sure. Um, what I what I wanted to start out with, which kind of ties into this, is when looking at all the research on you, 
one word that keeps coming up over and over again is this desire to create family. And I really love that because I feel like you probably have done that on every show and you're doing that now in your leadership role. Does that stem from your own family, like that desire to be a, a part of a community and a group? Well, most definitely it starts from my family. I have a great, awesome family um, who we are we are similar thinkers, you know, we have similar yeah. politics and uh, I grew up in a Jewish family, but we definitely have similar ideas of what it means to give back to humanity and to be leaders in our community. And all of my family does that. So I was taught by example. Um, and, uh, you know, through, and then also I just want to say on a personal note, I think because I'm a single mom, it's so mm. important that I've created my own family of friends and people who are, you know, like-minded, not just in politics, but in parenting and um, just, you know, in, in how we, we operate in the world. So I love people. I, you know, every other night I'm on a Zoom call with at least 10 to 20 people. I just think I would shrivel up and be so depressed. Uh, if we didn't have this incredible technology to be in touch, you know, my, my Seder, I, the Seder we had, we had 40 yeah. family members who had never been in the same room from all over the world. So oh there, my God. Are, oh, there are some wow. silver linings. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, there's not a lot yeah. of silver linings, but uh, when just in, in talking directly to the question you asked, that is yeah. the, the thing that's been, you know, really been hammered home for me during this time. It's family oh, yeah. and community and picking your family, you know, because yeah. my family I could do without. Let's just, oh, you know, yeah. let's just say it. <laughs> is Milo, is Milo in isolation with you or is he in school? <clears throat> no, he is in isolation with me. He is in school. And because he goes to NYU, his classes start at 6 a.m. here, which oh. is way much, be way better than his friend who lives in Thailand. Who oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, going to school from 9 p.m. to 5 in the morning. So everybody's doing what they can. And he's, you know, it's really funny because he's in theater school. So I can hear him doing scenes or exercising oh or up there going, wah, wah, boo. Hilarious. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. I, that is hilarious. <laughs> Acting school over Zoom. Okay. That's a new, that is a new challenge. <laughs> I know. It's Wow. It's it's really, it's wonderful to hear. But he's also been, here's another thing like I'm so proud of. He has been reading books to kids in hospitals and he has been, you know, contacting all kinds of schools and just inter interfacing with uh, youngsters. And he's been doing a lot. He did the Disney sing-along last night. Oh, and man. just to, you know, brighten up people's days and evenings. So it's been really wonderful. Oh, and he does Zoom calls with his fans, which is hilarious. You know, really? I can hear from okay. upstairs just girls screeching at the top oh, of their lives. Oh my box. God. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, because he's, okay, so when we did Major Crimes, he was just in high school and like doing shows and you're like, I think he's going to be a musical theater actor. I really feel it. And, and he's really talented. And then like since then he just exploded like crazy yeah, it time. Was crazy. I never wanted him to have an agent or to go the route of, you know, young performers because we know how that screws them up. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, you know, after college you can totally pursue it. 
And then, of course, he's doing a high school musical. He was doing Rent. He was playing Roger and Rent. And a casting director had come to see it. That's so Los Angeles. The casting directors come to see shows. But (laughs) she's a smart casting director. She was looking for really young talent because she cast for Disney. And um, she contacted Milo through my agent because he was nowhere to be found in the world. And said, could he come in and audition for this Disney show called Zombies? And I'm like, God, I've never had a casting director track me down. That, you know? <laughs> I, was, I was like, I was like, what is happening? And I thought, oh, this is fun. You should, you should go. And it, it turned into 11 auditions, three and a half months. And oh then God. they gave him this role. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's never been on the film before. And they're like, yeah. that's what Disney likes to do. Discover new kids. And boom. You know, yeah. eight months later, he had a million followers. It's been crazy. Oh, my God. That's exciting. And your career at the same time is booming, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, it's just, um, it's, uh, being a single mom in L.A., uh, yeah. wow, that's a lot. And a working mom. Like, you were on sets and stuff. Did you take them to set with you? I mean, yeah. You know, let me say this, because this makes me happy to say. Milo was born when I was on the practice. And uh, Callista also had a baby around that time. And, and Lisa Gay, Hamilton, and Kelly Williams, who was all in the practice. And yeah. David Kelly literally started a daycare center on the lot for oh. not just the actors, but for the crew and for anyone who had toddlers to make it easier for us. So, well, some people, and I'm sure, and, and for most people in the world, being a single mother while working is just uh, near impossible. David Kelly made it one of the most kind of beautiful experiences. So wow. personally, you know, being a single parent is, I think, a lot easier just because usually when you have a husband and, you know, no offense, all you dads out there who are great, it's just like having another man child. That's my sure. experience with my friends. <laughs> they have their children and then they have their husband. And I don't have yeah. that. So it's just easier. <laughs> <laughs> Milo gets all the love. <laughs> yeah, and and there's one, you know, there's one person in charge. You know, you don't have, to have yeah. the the bad guy, good guy. It just worked out for me, but obviously, I understand how difficult it is to be a single parent. It just, um, I don't know. I'm a solo flyer, and uh, mm. now I, I'm just. I feel like what I don't know. What was that like? The uh, the never-ending story. There's the the dragon, and then there was the kid. That's me and mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it it seems like you did kind of an incredible job. Um, Thank let you. Let me ask you a question. When did you, did you always know you wanted to be an actress? Always, I always really? knew it, but it never seemed possible. You know, I grew up in the Midwest in Peoria, Illinois. I just really acted for myself in the mirror. Right. But, um, I it had. I mean, I was the girl who used shampoo bottles for acceptance speeches and oh my God. <laughs> make myself cry in the mirror because I was such an amazing actress. And I would do, I would do interviews. I would interview myself on the couch. Like, I loved it so much, but it didn't seem possible. From right. the Midwest, my parents were educators. They're, my father was a mathematician. My mother was a school teacher. How the hell was I supposed to get from my couch in Peoria, Illinois? into the business it just it was a dream but it didn't seem really possible you know wow and how did okay, you get so there? what happened yeah <laughs> oh geez oh geez oh that's a long story but i 
Okay. Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to begin. I went to college for theater because I loved it. I was in Santa Cruz, California, still super far from Hollywood. I remember auditioning for, there used to be a league of professional theater programs. There was like 11 colleges in that league. I had a, I had a little motorcycle, a, a 125 two-stroke Suzuki, and I drove it to San Francisco I mean, I, I, it's a miracle I'm alive, to be honest. Oh, my it's a miracle God. I'm alive. It's not even, like, street legal. Like, it's just not what's so stupid. But I was invincible, like all these kids feel like mm-hmm. they are today. I made it there. Yeah. I auditioned. And I got into NYU, into their master's program, which was a shock. Wow. And um, that, then I went to NYU, and I met these incredible people. So here's, here's a good story. My last uh, play was supposed to be directed by a famous director, but he got a job. So then we got this kind of not famous director and I was pissed. I remember going to the Dean and going, hey, wait a minute. Part of the deal of being at a league school is that we get famous directors and now we get somebody I've never even heard of. And I was really pissed. And they're like, Cameron, you know, what can we do? The guy dropped out six days ago. This is a good director. I'm like, oh, we'll see. And then I end. <laughs> I ended up getting this director I'd never heard of and I didn't really care for. And he cast me as the lead ingenue, which was so screwed up because I had only ever played like people over 60 before, you know? Like I played <laughs> Mrs. Peachum in Three Penny Opera. I played Rebecca right. Nurse in The Crucible. She's 80. I played Queen Margaret, who's dead. Like, you know, I, I never had played anyone my own age. And he's casting me as the ingenue, and I'm like, this is fucked up. This is my last show at school, and you're going to embarrass me by me having to play an age I've never played before? <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's like, what is wrong with you? You're playing her, and you're going to be fantastic. And this person who I couldn't stand and I fought the whole time turned out to be Tony Kushner. I knew it. Who, oh my I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and not only did we fall in love with each other, but he was the minute I got out of school, he gave me my equity card at New York Theater Workshop. Like, you know what I mean? Wow. Sometimes yeah. I'm so feisty and I'm such a fighter, but in all of those moments, there's just these golden people who oh, carry yeah. me on their back. So anyway, wow. Tony and I an go way back. amazing story. Oh, oh, oh my God. I, that's one of a hundred. But anyway... I met Michael Mayer there. I met Steven Spinella then. I met so many incredible actors. But the real, how I really broke into Hollywood is from that, I did a one-woman show at the Public Theater called Wake Up, I'm Fat. And it right. was about what it's like to grow up fat in America, where we are openly discriminated against and loathed. And um, a casting director saw me in that show, not because he wanted to, but because somebody dragged him there. And uh, he asked me, he's, and after he saw the show, he said, gosh, how come I've never met you? And I'm like, well, it's because I don't have an agent, but that's why I'm doing this show. And he's like, do you have any tape? And I had two pieces of tape. For those of you who don't know or are just listening, you know, whenever um, a casting director or director wants to see how good you are, they ask for a tape of your work. So I had a tape and I gave it to him and it had two shows on it. And the reason why I even got those shows is because they needed someone who knew sign language. It wasn't even from a regular agent. They had gone wow. to the sign language agency and said, do you have any actors who sign? And they said, oh, yeah, there's this girl out of NYU. 
So I got two jobs on New York Undercover and I want to say Law and Order, where I signed as an attorney. And I gave the tape to the casting director and he calls me back and he said, listen, you know, the the writer doesn't think you're right for him. He thought you were a little too um, kind of, what's the word I'm trying, sophisticated. You were wearing pearls. And I go, I know, but that's what they put me in. I'm not sophisticated. I'm like, (laughs) I'm not sophisticated. I'm like streetwise and let's go, sassy. And so he said, listen, I'm going to have you come out to L.A. and meet him. And then that's what I did. I walked into a room, and there was this guy who I'd never seen before. I heard he was married to Michelle Pfeiffer, but I didn't know anything about television. I'm a theater girl. And we have a terrible conversation. It was about three minutes, and it was over. And at the end of the conversation, I noticed he had a cribbage board. And if you know anything about me, I'm a gamer. I play, I'm a poker girl, cribbage, whatever. Settlers of Catan, I will kick your ass in any game you want. I, I'm standing up to leave because obviously this guy didn't like me. And I said, oh, my God, do you play cribbage? And he literally, he kind of sat up. It was the first time he showed any signs of life at all in our meeting. <laughs> and, he, and he said, um, I do play cribbage, but I don't think you want to go there with me. Oh, I know, right? And I said, well, you know what? I feel like I could have this conversation with you and try to impress you like I'm obviously doing unsuccessfully now. And I could beat the shit out of you at cribbage at the same time. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, no, I don't think you understand. I play the computer. And I said, oh, I don't think you understand. I play for money. I go, so let's just fuck this audition and I'll play you right now for the part. And he's like, he was so, he was so taken aback. And he's like, I don't think you understand. I spunked my mother last week. I go, you know what I understand? I smell your feel. And we're like <laughs> in each other's face. And after a while, he's like, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. If you get out of my office right this minute, you'll be the first one to get the script when it's done. And I said, okay, you've got a deal. I walked out. That was David Kelly. And oh three weeks God. later, I had the job. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Okay. Cameron. Go off into a high-rate rant. Uh, this you is have an amazing... the biggest set of balls. And I kids, know. don't try that story at home. Um, uh, no, no. no. <laughs> Only for wow. professionals. Right. I just want to say, if anyone doesn't yeah. believe me, Get my book, because there's a chapter with all the letters David Kelly and I wrote back and forth to each other about this cribbage game that we eventually played. And obviously, I had to get that wait, wait. signed off by who legal won? lawyers. Oh, I can't wait, tell you. Wait, who won? Oh, I can't no, tell you. you can. No, I can't. Well, you got oh the my part, God. so I'm assuming it was you. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. We sealed the uh, verdict. But you'll get okay. more information if you, you know, in, in episode two, I'll tell you what happens. Okay, let's take the a next break. You know what? <laughs> We're going to go on a break. And Cameron, if you don't tell me who won on the break, <laughs> it's going to go down, okay? Um, let's take a break. Okay, we'll be right back with Cameron Mannheim. We're back. And yes, I threatened, I screamed, I cried. I did all kinds of shit. Cameron, can you tell the rest of the story? All right, if you listen. don't. I can't tell you who won the game, but I can tell you this. (laughs) After David and I finally played, he circulated a letter to the cast and crew of the practice, which simply said to the cast and crew of the practice, cribbage is no longer allowed to be played on the set of the practice. 
gambling <laughs> is illegal in the state of California. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys do the math. Oh, my God. Oh, I've head. done the math. I have oh, done the math. My God. My I mean, God. he's David Kelly. He's married to Michelle Pfeiffer. When does yeah. he play cribbage? Okay? Right. So I'm saying. <laughs> it, you know, th- th- this story just reflects how accurately you are cast as a badass repeatedly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're you. on the practice. You, yeah. get an em- you get an Emmy nomination. I, mean, I was such fanatical watcher of the practice this is before Thank binging you. people this is like you had to tune in to watch back in the, exactly yeah that's and right I, kyle and Jesus, i were old we were obsessed that episode with a head in the bag i mean just i like, can't oh. even yeah just brilliant, Michael brilliant Mark, work. that fantastic actor Mm-hmm. unbelievable um so what a career you've had and what a career you continue to have you're you're on Stumptown now and yep. um and obviously we're not shooting right now but you're there's another season coming i assume yeah <clears throat> well i am hoping you know we, yeah. you know we always live year to year to year may to may waiting to find out if our show is picked up but it was you know really well received and widely watched and the numbers were great so we are assuming it will be picked up but i don't know i never know Right. We and never especially never know with these intervening circumstances what's going to happen. Of course, of course. Uh, you um, you talk a lot about like uh, you know women and, and the role of women in television and how I think you said something like the revolution's happening on television uh, is being televised or something. It is. It is really changing on television. The kinds of roles women can play now, oh, isn't it? Fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. I am so excited to watch Miss America. Me you know, too. all about oh, I can't even wait to get there. But it is so it's true. It's fabulous, they, by the way. I I can't wait. I just can't wait. I uh, I just think when they finally realized that women could headline although they should have realized this long ago. I mean, when you go back to Cagney and Lacey or Lu- I Love Lucy, that women could headline television and movies and they could still make a lot of money i don't know why we just got lost in the idea that you know men were all the you know blockbusters but uh i have been so excited to see in the past you know five years that there's been a lot of women at the helm and female driven programs and on my show we have three badasses on my television show and i just think I just think, uh, you know, it's been exciting to see. I still think there's pay disparity, for sure. I think uh, there's been a few actresses who have been changing that, and I uh, am grateful for that, but I also feel we need to share the wealth with our working-class actors. You know, there's this – it's a very – it's a complicated – you know, uh, algorithm, really, because when people get paid so much at the top, to be the superstars, that means the people at the bottom aren't getting paid. But right. in order for women to rise and show the, you know, the financial power they have, they kind of have to rise up to that level too. But at some point, we need to, we need to spread the riches around because the working class actor is really just becoming, it's almost becoming impossible to do it. And many of our, uh, many working class actors have second jobs. Oh you yeah. Know? And it's not a hobby. This is their 
life. This is their where their right. their union is, where they get their health care and their pension. So you yeah. can't just have these minimum working hours for these um, working class actors when all the top, you know, the few top actors are just getting richer. Right. richer. But but the idea that women uh, are finally being given yeah. roles that aren't sexualized in, in ways that are gratuitous, that are people that are wife. making, yeah, the wife, the people that are exactly. making decisions. You're, you're, the, you're the ultimate boss. I mean, you were the big boss in our show <laughs> on I, Major Crimes, you know, you know? I love that. I was. And I was the big boss on Person of Interest. I played Control. Yeah. That was her name, Control. And yeah. I would say that... Um, when I played Eleanor Frett, she was one of the, on the practice, she was one of the first female, females on television who um, wasn't like, you know, average sized, who was, it was never spoken of really. She just did her job and she did a really good job at it. And you wanted her to be your attorney. And I just loved that it never became a part of the zeitgeist of our show, you know? No. And, uh, I appreciated that he let me be sophisticated and, and, and sexy and just a hard worker and smart. And uh, I hoped that that would add to the conversation about what women's roles could be like. I think it did. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I think that show changed a lot of television in terms of the, the kind of formatting as well, you know, but yeah. your, your role was really a breakout in that way. I mean, I, I did want her to be my lawyer. <laughs> People you know? still ask me to give them legal advice, and I give it. I do. That <laughs> a girl. That a girl. Um, what? What? What season? What season did you win the Emmy for? Was it right off the bat, or was it a little later on? No, it was in the. You know, we were that show on the TV Guide that was like the show, the best show you're not watching. Right. Nobody was watching us the first couple of years, and Jamie Tarsus really believed in us and she kept us on the air and then in the third season people were like what this is the best show we're not watching um and i the show won an emmy and i won an emmy and it was amazing it was finally you know uh everyone was taking notice and our numbers were great and yeah i won best supporting uh, uh, actress in a drama series i think it was 1998 you know what i'm gonna go to my bathroom right now and tell you what Year it was. It's 1998. Why? Is the, so the, the Emmy in your bathroom? I've got a, you yeah. don't have to move. Is what? Is the Emmy in your bathroom? <laughs> yeah, the Emmy is in the bathroom. Now, okay. now, here's the thing. If I could see, that would help. It was 1997, 1998, and it is okay. right next to my son's like second place Mabel Dancing with the Stars trophy. Yeah. Oh, my We're gosh. working hard here in my bathroom. <laughs> I mean, That's you. I remember watching you because I did watch the show just to watch Milo. Um, I remember like you in tears every day watching him dance. Like, and and at the same time, you you've got this new new job as well. So you're like juggling being like Wonder Mom and you know TV star at the same time. How the hell did you do that? That's well, a lot. I gotta give him a little bit of credit because he he makes me look like I'm doing a good job because he just kind of came out easy peasy, and so I know everyone's like, "Oh, you're such a good mom." I'm like, "He's he's a great kid." Um, but uh, Milo was 
in school from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., then riding up to Hollywood to go to Dancing with the Stars rehearsals. I was in, you know, Glendale shooting um, my show. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, yeah, it was it was an exciting time, though. Come on. It's yeah. Like when your children love what you love and they thrive in yeah. the same arena that you have loved your whole life. Yeah. You know, I got to watch grow up. I got to watch my son grow up. He did about three to four musicals a year, and I would right. just be in the you know third row center, um, illegally videotaping every show. Come on, right, right. <laughs> well, and also like now that one of the things I'm realizing now in in lockdown is how I'm actually making mental lists when I walk my dog or just at home of all the things that are the fun things that I got to do even just last year and how grateful I am I got to do them because, you know, who the hell knows when we'll be that active and that interactive with other people again, you know? So, um, but don't you think one of, one of the things that has really blown my mind is how creative and ingenuitive people have been like you making this program and, you know, the Saturday night satyrs that have been happening and the, talk show hosts and the theater that's going on. Yeah. My mind is just blown at how people have embraced, you know, have embraced this time and need yes. their, to continue with their creative juices, you know? How are you feeling about politics right now in terms of like we're in this weird space of like people can't campaign. Obviously we want to, you know, change leadership in DC. Do you have any sense of where we're heading that way with what's happening? You mean to hell in a handbasket? Is that what you mean? No. No, <laughs> no. no, I mean. No, no, no. Avoiding I'm... a hell in a handbasket. <laughs> you guys, it's one of the things I do want to say is that it is really important that everybody gives what they can to whether it's Feeding America or any any organization that's meaningful to you. But it is really also important that you keep up in your political endeavors and give to campaigns, you know, like for me, Katie Porter or someone like that to make sure that we are looking at down ballots and that we can have a strong group of leaders uh, moving into the next term. I don't know what's going to happen. I I have thought that there have been a thousand points of enlightenment for every one of those Trump voters to have changed their mind no. and uh, that didn't they happen. Haven't. So I know I am. Um, I, I honestly, somebody, you know, it's like, what does it feel like to not be, I, I can't use, I'm, you know what? I have words I want to use, but I'm not allowed to use them because they're not PC, but you okay. know what? <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, I, I feel um, like I'm not in, I, I don't know what universe I live in that this is happening. And yeah. that, Do you feel like you're people... being gaslit? Do you feel like you're being gaslit constantly? Because I keep looking around going, this is a man who has been proven that he has lied over 18,000 times since he's been in office. And other people, I mean, the people who are backing him, they don't seem to have issue with that. And if it were any other, well, if it were a Democrat, people would be up in arms about this. But the evangelicals that nobody seems to have any kind of opinion on. But this, here's my this thing. man is, 
go on. This pandemic, this, what has happened to the world right now and uh, to workers and to um, factories, this has got to hit home. They have got to have been screwed so badly. And yet they still, they vote against their own best interests. And I will never yeah. understand that. Well, I will I never understand all, I, I, I think let's call it what it is. There's a lot of stupid people in this country. And I'm not afraid to say it. There are a lot <sighs> of stupid people in this country. And there are a lot of people in this country that are, have their self-interest in mind vis-a-vis tax breaks and cuts. And right. so that's just, blah. let's get off that and get on to something really positive, which is our union is led by two women. And I just wrote a piece about how. Three, actually. Three. Three women. I I always think of you as as the, the only two, but okay, three women. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I just read a piece about how uh, in the COVID crisis, the countries that are doing best are being led by women. So when we come back from the break, mm-hmm. I want to hear. I want to talk wow. all about what made you want to serve, and I want to express my incredible appreciation for you serving. And um, let's take a little break and dig into the work you're doing at the union. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. We are back with the fabulous Cameron Mannheim. Before hi. I go into it, hi, before I go into the sag after, before we talk about that, there is a, a friend of mine told me a really funny story about, um, let's see if this rings a bell for you. Your shoe trick. Do you know what I'm talking about? My when you're shoe shooting, trick. Yes, when you're shooting with someone really short, you can oh. get in and out of your shoes really easy and back into them. Is that true? Well, I hate shooting with short people. And I'm <laughs> going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. I'll give you a good example. Okay. Jason Kravitz, who was a little uh, First of all, we hated shooting with each other. I mean, I love him. We're still friends. We play choker all the time. But he was short and bald. So... You know when you shoot a scene between two people, in order to let the viewer have some kind of orientation of where people are, when they're shooting over me to him, they'll catch a little bit of me. You know, my, right. the side of my face or, you know, yeah. my ear, just so you know, like, he's talking to me. Um, so he's short. So the the film, uh, the I'm sorry, the camera would be over my head pointing down on the top of his bald head, and he hates it. <laughs> But conversely, because he was short, they would have to capture a little bit of his face when then it would just go over him to me straight up under my chin. Oh my God. And that's why I hate shooting with short people. Not only do I hate shooting with short people, I hate short photographers because right. they think the that their up. eye line <laughs> is at my neck. Right. I mean, Jesus Christ, you need to walk around with an apple box and step on it or a ladder. <sighs> Because uh, I'll tell you one of the reasons why this COVID crisis is working for me. It's one of the reasons, other than all the game nights I get to do, is that I get to do selfies and Zoom, and my camera is like eight inches above my chin, and it's fantastic. I've never looked better. <laughs> I've never looked it. better than on a Zoom call. And not only that, I have one of those um, round things that have lights on it. Oh, I do too. So, the glam light. Oh my glam God! Light. Yes. It's so fabulous. I don't mean to make I don't mean to make light of what's going on, 
<laughs> with the crisis. You know, we're telling some fun stories, but please yeah. don't think for a minute that no, 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 keep we're me up at night. We're telling fun. But anyway, the, the shoe trick was that you you would wear shoes that you could get in and out of easily between takes. So yeah. That you could, yeah, I love so it. So I could be on the floor level instead of wearing heels. Yeah. I love so it. So if you didn't see my feet, I was always basically flat-footed so that the camera, I was always trying to cheat the camera just a few love it. inches. So, you know, girls yeah. are very, we just worry about stuff like that. Um, okay. So what made you want to serve at on, on the board, uh, SAG-AFTRA, uh, and uh, beyond the board, just on all the things you're doing for the union? Um, well... I come from a long line of union activists. My uh, my grandparents were in the union. They had started the the Millinery Workers Union, and my uncle was the secretary treasurer of the Teamsters Local 840 in in uh, New York. I just always kind of understood how important a union was, and that without it, we would just lose more and more of our um, strength and our and our paycheck and our ability to have benefits and really our livelihood. So, I mean, I I have a lot of friends who have served the union. It's a volunteer position and it is a lot a lot of work and they've asked me over the years to serve. And uh, I said, you know, I'm a single mom. That's a lot for me to take on. And I think Gabrielle Carteris, who is our president of our union, must have had it on some alarm on her computer because literally my son got into NYU, the acceptance letter, and about four hours later, I got a call from her going, it's time for you to serve your son's going to college. <laughs> <laughs> I think she had it on an alarm. Sure. Without a doubt. I was like, what, yeah. what can I do? And so I was like, sure, you know, let me join the board. She goes, no, Cameron, we don't need you on the board. We need you in a, in a bigger position. Yeah. And so I had not served on the board yet, and I jumped into um, running for secretary treasurer, which, for if you're interested at all, I help, I work with the CFO to make sure our, budge, our budgets are balanced and that our reserves are in good shape. Of course, that's why I'm saying I'm six months into this position and, you know, I all how it's working with. But we... We have the most incredible uh, department of brilliant people who are, we are doing amazing things for our members. We wanted to give as much relief as we possibly could to them because we know that when the entire industry shut down, um, you know, tens of thousands of our actors are in, wow. in crisis mode. So yeah. we have the SAG Foundation, which has been giving out almost close to $2 million so far. We have, um, we have um, extended dues payments. The, the health and pension gave a little bit of a break. It's, you know, unions have been systematically tried to be torn down over the past few decades because, you know, employers don't want to pay health and benefits and, and they don't want to give us great salaries. So and unions are super important, and I'm here fighting for everyone to make sure that their contracts reflect the great work they do. And by the way, I just want to say this. While everyone is in, under quarantine right now, one of the ways people are getting some kind of pleasure and getting through it and giving them um, something to do is through all the programming that the people in our union provide. Right. And mm -hmm. it is really important that we recognize our performers yeah. from our stunt people and to our broadcasters who are on the front line 
every single day. Yeah. And it's like, I, I know there's this idea that actors make a ton of money. Well, you know what? 1% of our union makes a ton of money. The other right. people work day in and day out to put food on the table and send their children to schools and make sure, you know, it's very important that we don't forget how important our entertainment industry is. It is not frivolous at all. Right. It is right. so important. And so thank you. I am Thank you so much for saying that. That's so important. And it's so true. Oh yeah. Um, Cameron, you know, let me ask you a question. What do you guys what what does SAG think is what are you talking about going forward as far as when when we're out of house arrest and we can go back to work? What is what what are you guys discussing? How will it look? Well, you know, there's so many moving variables right now. You know, there's no models for us to look back at. Right. Go, oh, this is what happened. You have to have some kind of a projection to make decisions. We are, we have models upon models of what happens if we go back in eight weeks or if we go back in 12 weeks, but we don't know. Um, And we're being very conservative about making any kind of statements because, you know, we have to maintain our, our strengths with the knowledge we have. We have to maintain our strengths with the, finances and reserves we have we're you know we still have a negotiation that we're facing you know we're going into you know whether it gets postponed or not i mean it's you know we are still you know we are you have no idea you think everything's shut down but you know actors need money and in order to get money they need a check in order to get that check that means people have to go into an office right and put it into so when people are like why is my check a little late or something? We're like, because we have seven people putting out 7,000 checks a week, you know? Right. Because we're not allowed in the building. So we have to, anyway, so moving forward, I wish I could give you more information. There's a lot of things being, um, banned, you know, like just uh, thrown about, but nothing is um, kind of concrete enough for me to tell you. I mean, I got to tell you, I never knew in my life until I joined this position, what our union does for us. But if you believe me and think I'm a, uh, you know, respectable human, what they are doing is hmm. incredible. Thank you so much for serving in the union. It's, uh, yeah. it, it gives me great comfort to know you are there and, and uh, Gabrielle and all the leadership. It's, uh, it's, it, it, it really does make me feel safer <laughs> knowing you're there it, looking it, out for us. <clears throat> The work they're doing is just amazing. Lobbying, legislation. Um, you, anybody who's an actor, you should go on the SAG AFTRA website. There are is a plethora of resources there for you to look at, where you can apply for funding, how you can get emergency relief, how to apply for unemployment. You know, the unemployment uh, thing is so complex. It's a mess and right now, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's kind a, of a mess. A mess and it's yeah. different for every state, you know. And uh, so there's a webinar there you can watch. There are webinars all the time that you can sign up for and watch and learn. Please go to the SAG After website. They have worked on it so hard to keep communication fluid with the members. And I hope that you'll find some important information there for you. This has been a total pleasure for me just to hear your voice. It's been a while. And, uh, okay, it's been a total pleasure for you. It was a total pleasure for me too. You guys want to get on one of my Zoom game nights? 
Yeah. I love That's what I feel like I should do. I should auction off me being the game master for, you know, a party, and then I can donate that money to a foundation or to the ACLU or, you know, I should start doing that because that's really that is a brilliant idea. I cannot thank you enough for joining us. You have been so much fun, and we've learned so much. And thank you anytime. Well, this was so fun. Thank you for pointing, shining a light at all those the things we're doing. And I adore you. And you. you know, stay healthy and Godspeed. Oh my gosh, she's such a delight. She is a total delight. And I, I, you know, I kind of am really glad that she talked about SAG like that because, you know, you forget. You forget how much your union does for you. I, I mean, and, I certainly do. And that it's volunteer. You know, the majority yeah. of the, all the leadership is volunteer except for the executive director. And these people are working around the clock for us. So incredibly grateful. Um, so the team... The teaser we had earlier was about a guest we have coming up. And as you know, Tara, I've been talking to you a lot about my uh, concern about what is happening to the migrants that are still in detention during the COVID crisis. And in fact, it's a really big issue. And it's an issue that Amnesty International is very involved in. And uh, we are lucky to have, after the break, Denise Bell, who's a lawyer and a researcher of refugee and migrant rights. And she is going to fill us in on what Amnesty International has been trying to do for these folks. So please, a very important, not very long segment coming up. And uh, we'll see you on the other side of that. And we're back. Um, We have a really uh, wonderful guest today. Um, Denise Bell is a researcher for refugee and migrant rights at Amnesty International. Hi, Denise. Hello. It's good to be here. It's so great to have you. Good to have you. We are very concerned about something that the media is not covering right now, and we thought you would be one of the best people to discuss it. As obviously, most most of our listeners, I'm sure, know the horrible conditions at the migrant detention centers in the past couple of years. And I cannot imagine what kind of horror show is happening there now with the pandemic. Can you shed a little bit of light on that and uh, what Amnesty International is trying to do about it? Absolutely. So, you know, what what we're facing is a situation where the government is endangering public health by not looking after people in detention centers, immigration detention centers. And we're not talking only about the asylum seekers, the immigrants, the children, the families who are detained, but also the facility staff, the judges, the interpreters, the contractors, everybody. Because what Mm. we've learned with this virus is that it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't know a border. And if you endanger one, you endanger all. And that is exactly the point that Amnesty International has been saying again and again. When the pandemic was announced a few weeks ago, well, about a month ago now, we immediately came out with a letter to President Trump and the Coronavirus Task Force saying, put human rights at the center of all stages of the response, because if you leave anybody behind, you endanger us all. And we said Mm. the same thing to ICE. 
and ICE is responsible for the custody of uh, detained immigrants. And we called for the immediate reduction in population because it's a, it's, it's a time bomb there. There is no social distancing. There is negligent care already, and there's overcrowding. This is Denise, just... do we know do we know uh, how many if there there are actual outbreaks in the facilities? Yes, yeah, so what we do know is that um, on Friday, ICE reported publicly that there were at least fifty detainees at eighteen facilities and at least fifteen staff um, at four other facilities who had um, covid nineteen. So that is what they're reporting, but as Amnesty has documented again and again, ICE has hidden um, or moved the ball and not fully disclosed what was happening um, by not testing or by using certain language to hide actually who might actually be exposed to COVID-19, putting people in isolation and saying, oh, they weren't symptomatic. So we don't actually know. We don't actually know. Okay. Horrifying. That is just the most horrifying thing. It is so upsetting that it's not even being covered by any outlet. This is a, a horror show. And w did you get, did MC International get any response from ICE about, uh, about the sort of call to action? No. No, um, we didn't. We don't normally. <laughs> I will <laughs> say, <laughs> when we did send our letter to the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Fochi's office got back to us and acknowledged receipt. What can our listeners and just the general public do to uh, amplify this? And, and, and I, I saw the letter from Amnesty International basically saying, you know, that this is the time to release, you know, people that aren't dangerous, obviously. Um, uh, under humanitarian, uh, you know, guidelines, right? Um, uh, yeah, what what can we do to to make this, uh, you know, an issue? Well, I, I'm so glad that you asked that because this is the time more than ever when there's a crisis. We have an opportunity to make change and to show that an, an inequitable and inhumane system that existed never needed to. Many right. of these people who are detained are detained solely because of their migration status, which, which is unlawful under human rights law, but often it's also unlawful under U.S. law because they're detained for prolonged periods arbitrarily in substandard conditions without adequate access to care. And so you have that situation, and now this virus has exacerbated it. And so what we need now, again, it's about all of us, because what we've seen, this virus doesn't care who you are. <laughs> Right. And it doesn't care where you might live and where you might travel between. And so we need to be able to follow the Center for Disease Control Prevention Guidelines, CDC guidelines. We need to reduce the populations immediately. It can be done safely. Many people in detention already have family sponsors waiting to welcome them. Many really? people, um, you ha yes, absolutely. This is not just releasing people into the street, as some people ask. No, they have community sponsors waiting to them. This is an orderly process. The government has the authority to do this. And it was doing this until this administration decided to punish people for seeking safety here or to detain them simply because they are immigrants and not release them. And so the government has the authority to release them. It's the parole authority. And if they want, they could also, judges could bond them out. 
and there is a structure in place to do this. We need to, of course, prioritize those who are most vulnerable, either because of their age or underlying medical conditions, and we need to release all families. Right now, there are one-year-olds who are detained Ugh. for months, oh, and they have not released them. And they say, like, they don't release people because they are a flight risk or threat to the community. And, like, a one-year-old with a mom is a threat to the community and a flight risk when she has people waiting to sponsor her in the community? A one-year-old. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly not a Christian American value. <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely not what we purport to be American values. That's certainly... And, and can you um, can true. you for those for, for those that don't know the law, you know, I think that there's a, a big misconception about migration. I mean, it is it is within the law that people can seek asylum in the United States and have a fair trial, isn't that right? Absolutely, and and I'm so glad you asked that question because the um, yes, I am a lawyer um, and um, and a researcher and a campaigner. And uh, also just the person who cares, everybody gets a fair shake, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but before I was at Amnesty International, I was with the Department of Justice on, um, on the New York Immigration Court. And so there I, I heard many of these asylum claims and uh, worked with judges to draft opinions. And so I understand this picture from all sides, both from the advocacy side and from the legal side, how the government perceives it how the lawyers who bring the claims for asylum seekers perceive it and why people flee and what the stories they tell. And one thing that I think many, many Americans don't realize is that this is one of the few pieces of the right to seek asylum, one of the few times that we as a country took international human rights law, which is the Refugee Convention and then something that's called its protocol from 1967. We took that and in, we made it U.S. law through the 1980 Refugee Act. And by that, I mean we took the right to seek asylum and the basis for asylum, and we made it U.S. law. Congress passed the bill. The president signed it. So that is how much we as a country value refugee protection, the right to seek asylum. And our laws are very, very clear. There's no ambiguity. You can seek asylum no matter how you enter the country, and you won't be punished. But what we see is an administration using a public health response to further an agenda that actually strips the right to seek asylum. Asylum at the border is basically shut down. People cannot enter the country to ask for asylum. They're being summarily expelled, including children. Wow. Um, well, yeah. I'm, I'm really, it's not getting much attention. Yes, exactly. No, it's not getting any attention right now. And I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, you came on here to talk to us about it. And uh, if people want to contribute or help, what what is the best way for people to do that? The best way is you go to our landing page. It's um, on COVID-19. So it's amnestyusa.org. Great. Forward slash COVID-19. We'll put up a and link for the podcast. Thank you. And there you'll see um, our action on to ICE to release asylum seekers and immigrants. We're going to have a new action around um, families with very young children who are detained to release those families immediately. And you'll also see actions around the border and the, um, how we've shut down the border and stripped the right to seek asylum. 
Right. And Denise, well, would it help? Would it help at all to to for people to write their their Congress people, their senators? Would that help? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what we're going to be doing this week is setting up actions for people in targeted states to contact their um, actually their governors and stop, um, top state officials who have the authority to pressure ICE to release these populations. Um, but always, 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 the very first line is that, you know, in a democracy, we elect officials, they're, they're accountable to us. And when they mm -hmm. hear from you, they start to take action. If they don't, they'll hear from us, the advocates working at a different level. But once they start to hear from the people who elect them, then they start to care and they know what's going right. on. So they just need to hear from you to start to take action to put more pressure on ICE. Because once Congress starts to intervene, it gets much, much harder not to say no, to say no. Mm -hmm. okay. oh, Denise, this was, this was fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing this information with us. I, I really think our listeners are going to respond to this and we'll put up the links that you sent to us. And uh, we wish you all the best in getting this um, resolved as best we can at this moment. Thank you, and I, I really appreciate you having me on so we could tell the story. Thank you, Denise. Thank, Thank you, you, Denise. Well, that was uh, a big show, Tara. <laughs> it was a big show, and I um, that that last segment is she blew me away. Um, so we are going to put up all the links for uh, places that Cameron talked about and, of course, Amnesty International. And uh, what a good show, Johnny. Great. It's really important to keep doing these. And uh, it's really important, I feel like, especially after that last segment, to now, you know, we are privileged. You know, we have a home. We, we have food. Um, we have friends. And... Uh, I think it's important important to turn our gaze to people that are either homeless or in in jail or you know migrants in these camps. We we have to shine a light on this because it's just not getting reported. And um, I'm glad we did. So I'm glad we did too. And and you're speaking also to a bigger thing, which I love, which is we all have to be helping each other right now. And absolutely yes. You know that is I think that's. That's one of the beautiful things that I think is going to come out of this. So uh, you certainly helped me yesterday with your soup and your cookies. Ah, I'm glad you liked them. I, more, <laughs> I more, did. More to come. More to come. Oh, oh my God. Oh, that's I mean, not exciting. today, but it's down oh. the road. <laughs> well, when? Are you, are you hungry? <laughs> no, I can wait. I can be patient. Okay. I can be patient until next week when we come back okay. with another fabulous guest. And Johnny, yes. if you could yes. ask our listeners to do three things, what would they be? I would ask them to download our show and to uh -huh. rate and review us uh -huh. and subscribe. That's so, that's so little to ask, isn't it? Uh, it really is. And it should be, uh, it should just be the first thing they do. So please do it. Really it. It'll really help. Yeah, it'll really help us. Um, um, yeah, all right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And Johnny, thank you for just being you. And our uh, wonderful guests, Cameron Mannheim and Denise Bell. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll, okay, go on, Johnny, say it. I'll see you next Tuesday, Tara.
Yeah. All right. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye.